in the New Testament, first from Romans chapter 6. The uh, theme that will tie the two scripture readings together is what is the relationship between God's grace and our call to obedience, uh, what we might call the law of God. Uh, how, do, how do the two of those work hand in hand? Romans 6, then, we'll read that chapter. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So far from Romans, let's also turn to Titus. The short letter written to Titus, chapter 2.
Titus 2, we'll begin in verse 11, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So far the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 5, stanzas 8 through 9. In the confession of this Christian church, And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 24, that's on page 538 of your books of praise, if you wish to follow along. There the question is asked, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? Because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God, whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. But do our good works earn nothing, even though God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not earned, it is a gift of grace. Does this teaching not make people careless and wicked? No, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So far, the reading of the Catechism. (laughs) 
Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this sermon and uh, this Lord's Day is really just the second part of the message that was presented last week in the catechism reading we had then. Uh, last week, the core message, uh, the, the message was, was the, the very core uh, message of the gospel, which is that we are saved by nothing, 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 and nothing but the grace of God. Now, that's a message that needs to be preached, and it needs to be preached over and over and over again, not just here from this pulpit, but each and every one of you within your own hearts must preach that message to yourselves day after day. It is a perennial temptation for us to forget the gospel truth and start once again trusting in our own works, our own performance. So we need to never stop hearing that uh, until it becomes so deeply ingrained in us that it becomes second nature for us to stand on the grace of the gospel in everything that we do. Uh, and that's the purpose of this, Lord's Day. It's here to address some of the objections to that gospel message that we are really saved by nothing but the grace of God in Christ. Uh, And the main objection is, yeah, but don't our good works at least count for something in the sight of God towards our righteousness? Doesn't my own obedience, uh, my own earnest striving to live out the gospel life, doesn't that at least count for something for my salvation? Understand well, brothers and sisters, that every one of us does struggle with that objection, whether you realize it or not, uh, whether you're conscious of it or not, uh, because our very human nature wrestles with that question. It runs deep in our bones to believe that our works, our performance does count for something in the sight of God. And so we need to deal with this uh, objection head on, and that's what this Lord's Day is here for. The objection comes from three main angles. Uh, The first, it's expressed in the first question and answer. Uh, The first is just our natural human instincts. We just feel like we have to earn something. We just feel like God's expecting some performance from us and that that will determine whether or not we are saved. Uh, And we think that uh, oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we we think that maybe the gospel just lowers the bar. It lowers the bar for what God requires of us for that performance, but God does still require some performance for us to be saved. Uh, So maybe it's not the perfection that the law requires, uh, but it is at least that we read our Bibles every day, that we go to church, that we pray, that we don't smoke or drink, don't uh, do drugs, don't watch porn, and all that. And that's the new law that we say the gospel now sets. If you meet that law, that's the performance by which you are saved, so we often think. Uh, and, and this way of thinking is so natural and so subtle that we often don't even realize that we are doing that. But it does show up. It does show up, as these things always do. Uh, it shows up in one way in a disposition towards condemnation. 
of others, uh, an attitude towards others that is missing the grace of God, missing the compassion of God that we claim ourselves to know. Uh, You would expect someone who knows himself to be saved by grace to be gracious in his disposition. If he's not, that's often an indicator that he does not believe he is saved by grace. Uh, behind that sort of condemnation can be the attitude, well, I'm not like that. It's, you remember the, uh, the uh, uh, parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector that we looked at last week. That's the attitude of the Pharisee. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that. Uh, we, we do that, and that's a clear indicator that we've slipped back into the belief that at least our works count for something. There are other indicators, too. Uh, a feeling of despair when we fall into sin, feelings that God couldn't possibly love me now, which assumes that He could have before I fell into sin. Or uh, when we fall into sin, uh, we exert ourselves with a double earnestness. I'm going to make up for what I did. I'm going to make up for where I failed. Uh, An exertion that is driven by guilt. There too, uh, that belief shows up. Uh, So, even if we don't fall entirely all the way back onto the law as the means by which we are saved, uh, because we know that uh, that's not going to work, what we do is we produce for ourselves a secondary law, a new law, a law of our own making that's at least attainable, and then we measure ourselves by that law. And that's where this first question in the catechism is coming from. Uh, Is it not the case that our good works are at least part of our salvation before God? There's a human instinctual uh, thing within us that says that our own good works must be part of our righteousness. And, And the answer to the catechism is simply to remind us we've been through that. That's not going to work anymore. Uh, Our good works cannot be part of God's righteousness. We saw this all the way back in Lord's Days 3 and 4. They cannot be uh, because God doesn't have a second law, a more attainable law, a new standard by which we are judged. He has one law, and it's never changed, and it demands absolute perfection. Do you wish to be judged by the law? Then you must be perfect. And if you fall short you will be in trouble. There's no other standard by which God makes exceptions for any of us. There there is nothing but the perfect righteousness of God uh, by which God judges sinners. Scripture says it this way in Galatians 3, verse 10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law and do them. If you sin against one commandment, uh, James says, you've sinned against all of the commandments. And really, uh, that's somewhat of not, not even a relevant point because we've sinned against all of God's commandments. If you think you've only sinned against one of them, you don't even know how far fallen you are. Uh, so we must learn uh, to, to fight with every ounce of our being against this tendency which stems from pride that says, I will still be judged by God's law. Maybe not the perfect one, but at least some law. It is pride that says this. 
Uh, There is only one law, and you have broken it. Do not desire to be judged by God's law. Rest in God's grace. That's the message of the first question and answer. The objection then comes to us from a second angle as well, which is from... Uh, somewhat from the angle of Scripture itself, or a certain reading of Scripture. Uh, And so the question is asked, well, doesn't Scripture itself speak of God rewarding our obedience? So there you have it. Scripture says that we are saved by our righteousness. Uh, So the assumption goes. Now, it's certainly true, Scripture does say that God rewards obedience. We could point to many different examples. Now, God came to Abraham in Genesis 15 uh, at a time when Abraham was, was struggling with his decision to follow God to the land of Canaan uh, because he didn't have any offspring yet. He hadn't inherited the land yet, and he was wondering, uh, is this worth it? Is this worth it uh, to follow God's call? Uh, and then God came to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Fear not, Abram, I, for I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. So God promises a reward. Are we then saved by our obedience? Uh, we might point to other examples as well. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, how to give alms. Uh, and, in, and in both cases, he spoke of a reward. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you, he says. So can we not speak of a certain reward for our good works? Well, we can, and Scripture does, but here's the thing. That reward, that reward is clearly not referring to something that God owes us because of our obedience. Uh, It is not the wages of our righteousness. Uh, It is not some alternate way of salvation that doesn't involve the suffering, death, and, uh, and resurrection of Christ as the only way to God. Uh, and here's, here's why. You can really only have it one of two ways. If that reward that God speaks of is our due, is what God owes us for our obedience, then you would have no need of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. It can only be one of two ways. Uh, if you do need Christ's death and resurrection and you confess that you need that, uh, then that reward, whatever that reward is, can only ever be a gift of grace. Something God gives His children out of His grace. If you confess, I am a sinner, deserving of hell, deserving of judgment, then what room is there to speak of reward except as a gift of grace? And that's precisely the argument the Catechism makes concerning this reward. Uh, We are still saved by nothing but the grace of God. Whatever reward there is, is a reward given by grace. Then the objection comes to us from one more angle still, and that's the angle of concern for obedience to God's law. And this is something we should spend a few minutes thinking about. The objection runs as follows, and I bet you've heard it yourself in similar words. It goes as follows, if we dare, if we dare to actually preach pure grace to people, aren't they going to take that as a license to sin? Now that is a real concern, isn't it? We know that from experience, that it can happen that people believe that they're saved 
while living in sin. They're preaching some form of grace to themselves uh, while ignoring God's law. Scripture speaks of them. They're called hypocrites. And we can have that concern. We probably all know of people who've grown up in the church and lived that very life. And so the temptation is, well, we need to stop preaching grace. We need to start preaching law some more. But here's the thing. How many of those people, think of those that you might know, how many young people, uh, for example, who live a sort of lawless life, how many of them actually believe in God's grace? For how many of them is that life actually flowing from a conviction of God's grace? Uh, How many of them were raised in a home that was marked by God's grace? Not many. Not many. Most of the time, that pattern of life, and I know it's not all of the time, but most of the time, that pattern of life stems from a home where the gospel is either muted or altogether absent. Now, of course, individuals are still individuals. They're still responsible for themselves. Uh, But the suggestion that people live that way because they were raised on too much grace uh, is, is is a foolish suggestion. It does not correspond to the facts. Now, we might make a distinction here, a helpful one, between gospel grace and parental indifference. There are some who call that uh, grace, uh, but those are two totally different things. Indifference says, who cares? It says, boys will be boys, doesn't really matter, not a big deal, I'm not going to intervene. Well, that's not grace, that's indifference, that's a lack of love. Uh, gospel grace, however, confronts sin, deals with sin, uh, and does so on the foundation of the grace of God, where sinners have forgiveness in Christ. And so here's the reality. Nothing but the grace of God will ever change anyone. Nothing will. The law by itself will only condemn and only lead to more death. Nothing but the grace of God can change sinners. So, so yes, we need to preach the law. Uh, but the law that we preach then is the righteous, perfect, holy law of God Not some secondary law that that we might find more attainable. And the gospel that we preach is the one and only gospel. uh, The gospel of God's pure grace, complete grace in Christ. That's the only thing that changes sinners into saints is the grace of God. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he's a Reformed preacher in North Carolina, Uh, He said recently, uh, this doctrine of justification by grace can sound like very bad advice. But I look at Galatians and Romans, and I think if people hear us talking about justification and don't almost think that we're giving them license to sin, we probably aren't preaching grace strong enough. And he's right. Uh, The Apostle Paul himself was accused of this very same thing, of preaching a gospel message that's so full of grace that it leads to a life of sin. Romans 3 verse 8, he talks about those who accused him of preaching that. So this is nothing new. The gospel makes self-righteous people uncomfortable. Uh, The gospel made the Jews uncomfortable. The gospel made Paul, before he was a Christian, uncomfortable uh, because he believed it would lead to lawlessness. Uh, Again, in Acts 21, uh, when Paul was accused 
by the Jews, one of the accusations they brought was he preaches a message that leads to lawlessness. Uh, and this is, this is a, a concern that many have towards the Christian faith. It's a concern that Muslims often express against the Christian faith. Uh, Muslims believe that God measures us in, in a balance, as it were. He weighs us by our works. Uh, and they say, well, the Christian gospel, because it removes that, that law of God, uh, as they understand it, uh, there's nothing left to keep people from sinning. Uh, and it's only confirmed when they look at America or they look at Canada, which they uh, believe to be Christian countries, and they see all the lawlessness, and they say, look, see, that's what the gospel does. But the fact that Paul himself was accused of that very thing would suggest uh, that, as Kevin DeYoung says, if we're not being accused of giving people a license to sin, we're probably not preaching the same gospel that Paul preached, because that's what he was accused of. And so how do we deal with this objection? Does the gospel lead to lawlessness? Is that a legitimate concern. Well, we read earlier from Romans 6, where Paul deals with this objection head on. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer that Paul gives to that objection is not, it's not, no, 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 once you're saved, now you've got to keep the law to stay saved. That's not what he says. Instead, Paul shows us that uh, that, that that objection itself misunderstands the gospel. Uh, he says, how can those who have died to sin, that's the gospel, how can those who have died to sin still live in it? Understand then what Paul is saying. Uh, he's saying when we receive Christ, crucified for sinners, uh, crucified out of a hatred for sin and a recognition of the death that sin brings, when sinners receive that Christ, for them to then turn, in, turn back to sin uh, is hypocrisy. It shows that they haven't truly embraced that Christ. Christ died to save you from sin, not to let you live in sin. Uh, See, the true gospel uh, embraces the whole Christ, uh, including the ultimate purpose and the heart of Christ, which is to deliver us from sin itself. Uh, Embracing Christ means recognizing the ugliness, the vileness, uh, the, uh, the death of sin itself. Not just the death that sin deserves, but the death that is sin itself. The emptiness of that life. Uh, and, and sees that as the thing from which Christ came to save us. Uh, Paul describes that transformation as a death to sin. Uh, by believing in Christ, we die to sin in that very act of believing. We die to the whole package of sin, both the sin itself and uh, all the judgment that the sin deserves. Uh, when we embrace Christ, we recognize that's who I am, the sinner for which Christ came to die, and I'm done with that person. I hate that person. I want to be saved from that person. In a very, in a very real way, the old man within us dies, and a new person in Christ comes to life. And so Paul is exactly right to ask the question, how can one who has died to sin still live in it? 
And that's how Paul addresses that objection. If you think that it, the gospel gives you a license to sin, you haven't yet understood the gospel. Now, none of that means that a Christian doesn't still struggle with sin. We do. In chapter 7 of that same book, just one chapter later, Paul is very honest about that reality. He says, the good, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do is the very thing that I do. Wretched man that I am. But then he addresses that with the gospel. He says, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the Christian still struggles with sin. Uh, But the Christian struggles with sin in a very different way than the unbeliever who doesn't struggle with sin, who embraces sin. Uh, The Christian still finds sin acting up within him, uh, but it acts up as the old man or the old woman that that sinner has put off. It's not dead yet. It's, it's dying. It's not, uh, it's not gone yet, uh, but it certainly one day shall be. Uh, that's a radically different thing than the Christian uh, or than the person who simply doesn't care about his sin, who just wants to escape hell but isn't concerned with escaping sin itself. That man still needs to die in Christ. The problem then with that man, the problem is not a gospel that gives him license to sin uh, or the pure grace of the gospel that stands behind that. Uh, That is not his problem. That's his only hope. Uh, His problem is he hasn't yet reckoned with the law, with the man that he is, with the sin that lives within him, the law that condemns him. And the solution to such, a, such an individual to, to address such a person's life is not to uh, give up the gospel, which is his only hope, and give him more law uh, that will not save him. The law might humble him to bring him to the gospel, but you cannot mix uh, the gospel with new and additional laws. The gospel is grace, pure grace, and that does change and save sinners. And so we want to reaffirm uh, that gospel. And that's why we also read from Titus chapter 3. If you read Titus 3 carefully, you'll notice there's not a single place in Scripture that uses the phrase good works as often as Titus 3 does. Uh, Already back in in chapter 1 of Titus, uh, Paul talks about how overseers must be above reproach. Another way of speaking, also of good works. Uh, And then he goes on to describe in detail the kind of conduct that is fitting for uh, office bearers. Later on in that same chapter, he talks about those who uh, profess to know God but deny Him by their works. In chapter 2, he tells Titus, uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, And then what does he... uh, count under that what accords with sound doctrine, uh, a long description of what a godly life looks like. That's what accords with sound doctrine. Uh, And then he concludes chapter 2 with this summary statement. This is what I want to highlight in verses 11 to 14. Uh, Look how grace and good works come hand in hand in the Christian life. Uh, Titus 2 verse 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, there's more grace, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You'd be hard-pressed then to find a better preacher of good works than Paul. He preaches good works. Uh, You see it again in chapter 3 where he goes on in detail about what that good life looks like. So what's going on? Has Paul uh, forgotten the gospel that he just preached because now he's talking about good works? Well, no, clearly not. In fact, explicitly not. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's gospel, right? That's gospel. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Again, verse 7, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to eternal life. Paul hasn't forgotten the gospel when he teaches good works when he teaches a holy life, uh, he's uh, saying this is what the gospel looks like lived. Uh, So we we can ask, well, on what basis, how does it make sense for Paul to talk about, uh, to talk this way about good works? Uh, On what basis does he command the Christian to be devoted to good works? It's not backed up by threats. So so how is it backed up? Well, uh, it's the very same basis as you find in Romans 6. If you look at verse 3, uh, he reminds uh, these Cretans, uh, among whom Titus was ministering, uh, he reminds them of who they once were. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's who you were. That's the people God saved. But, he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Saved us from what? Saved us from the judgment that that sin deserved, yes. And saved us from those people that we once were. Saved us from our old selves. Uh, He saved us, he says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Uh, uh, that, that washing, that renewal, is, is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit making us, uh, through faith, into new people. It gives us a whole new set of desires, a hatred for sin, uh, the sin that Christ also hated enough to die for, a love for the righteousness which Christ died to give us. Uh, So a lot happens in the moment when we embrace Christ by faith. Uh, Whether we're talking about a single uh, dramatic moment, a conversion uh, in an instant uh, sort of story, or or even the gradual conversion by which one steadily, increasingly embraces Christ. Uh, In either case, a lot happens in the soul of that person. We see the law of God, and we see how we are justly condemned. We see who we are as law breakers. Uh, We see the judgment of God that we deserve. And then we see the grace of God 
given to us in Christ. We long for it, we run to it, we embrace it, and then we, when we receive it, we turn around and hate the life we once lived and run towards a new life. As we reach towards Christ, Christ also then works within us. So Paul is preaching here, uh, so clearly, uh, a message of pure grace, pure mercy, no works need apply. No works will save us. This is who you were, this is how God saved you, and therefore this is who you not have to, this is who you get to be. Uh, He says, uh, he saved us, justified us by his grace, verse 7, so that we might become heirs of eternal life. Now that's a loaded phrase, heirs of eternal life. Uh, It doesn't only mean uh, people who hope to go to heaven. It doesn't only mean that. Uh, It means more those whose lives show that they are heirs of true life, life with God. Eternal life is knowing God, loving Him, living with Him. That's true life. Uh, So He saved us so that being justified, we might live. That we might live with God. So it's pure grace, uh, and it's grace that leads to change. Verse 8, I want you to insist on these things. What things? Grace. To insist on these things so that you who believed in God may be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Again, the message hasn't changed. It's staying exactly the same. Uh, Only the grace of God has the power to make us into a new creation. Only the grace of God can lead us to devote ourselves, as he says, to good works. We don't do it because it's a new law by which God now judges us. We don't do it to earn our place among God's people. Now, we don't do it to prove anything either. We devote ourselves to good works because we know that that's our God. He's good. And because we love Him, we too long to be made in His good image. Amen.